welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome, everyone, to episode number six of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus, and I am joined today by our guest, Dr. Michael Gerges, a practicing medical doctor who serves as a medical director and consultant for corporate security and executive protection teams responsible for the safety and security of ultra-high net worth clients. Michael is a Southern California native and UCLA alumnus who left the beaches in sunshine for Boston, Massachusetts, where he attended and completed Harvard Medical School. It was while in med school that Michael decided to pursue the specialty of emergency medicine. He later returned to Southern California to complete his emergency medical residency training at Loma Linda University Medical Center, a level one trauma center in San Bernardino County. Michael is a sworn peace officer and reserve deputy for San Bernardino County Sheriff's, where he currently serves as a volunteer flight physician on the air rescue team. And additionally, he has worked with the Sheriff Department's SWAT team, dive team, and search and rescue team. Michael also volunteers his time as a working group and technical committee member on the Board of Executive Protection Professionals. Michael, man, it is so great to have you on the podcast with us today. Uh, We've been talking about having you join us and talking about the nexus of emergency medical care and protective security for some time now. And uh, I'm just excited to have you on to share your insights and this unique vantage point as a medical doctor with our audience today. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate it. It's uh, great to, to be with you today. And, uh, and thank you for that introduction. I mean, I, I feel like a superstar now the way you, uh, you just sold me. Um, once again, I appreciate it. I know we've been talking uh, for a few months now about getting together, and I'm glad we can find some time to get together. And I'm looking forward to talking to you here. Michael, before we jump into you know, the deep end of the emergency uh, medicine concepts and applications for protective security, you've got an interesting backstory and uh, kind of how you decided to attend medical school as opposed to some other options that were maybe um, on your path. And then you've got this route into the executive protection world as well. Um, I kind of glossed over some of that intentionally because I wanted our listeners to hear that part of the story from you directly. Yeah, so I don't have the most, I guess, standard of, uh, you know, go to high school, go to college, go to medical school, go to residency and practice medicine for 30 years and retire. I kind of switched it up a little bit. So, you know, my, my life story is I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in the city of Lakewood from 10 years on to going to college. And I lived literally behind the Lakewood Sheriff Station, and they had a, an LZ of one of the uh, basically sheriff uh, flight helicopters. And you know, I just recall being ten years old, hearing the sirens, hearing the helicopter come in and out of that that uh, sheriff station, and I was just, you know, I loved it. I was in awe of it. I remember taking pictures and things. Um, so I'd always grown up thinking, hey, I want to be a cop. I want to be a pilot. This looks really cool. This is great. Ended up going to high school. I was always a good student, played sports, ended up injuring myself, playing sports and lifting weights, just kind of aggravated an injury to the point where I could no longer um, play sports or, or do really anything physical. Uh, I herniated a couple of discs in my lower back. So I had to kind of change career plans um, where I couldn't probably go to a sheriff academy. Um, I thought about being a pilot. My dad, this was at the time of uh, the early Iraq wars in the middle of the, uh, the 90s. And, you know, my dad had mentioned to me, he's like, listen, he goes, you've got all these military pilots that are going to be coming back uh, to the state soon, and they're going to take all your jobs. You're never going to find a job. So I ended up going to college. You know, I, it's not something I even really wanted to do. I ended up applying to three schools, you know, UCLA, UC Irvine, and Embry Riddle, which is a flight school in uh, Arizona. Um, and then kind of after having discussions with my father, decided to end up going to UCLA, didn't want to go into flight school with my back injury at UCLA. You know, I was a psychobiology major. I wasn't really pre-med yet, um, but I'd had a little inclination uh, in dealing with physical therapists and doctors and things and always kind of being in and out, giving MRIs and procedures done for my back, uh, that I thought medicine would be a great career. So I ended up, you know, studying pre-med, taking the MCAT, doing all that got accepted, lucky to get accepted to Harvard Medical School, which would be one of the, the better schools in the country. Had a great four years in Boston, missed home, missed my own car, 
uh, miss, you know, sunny Southern California where the weather's always great and came home, uh, speaking to a friend of mine. He was at Loma Linda, uh, was doing residency there. And he had mentioned something that they had had a working uh, relationship with San Bernardino County uh, Sheriff's Department, especially uh, specifically air rescue and applied there, made it my number one uh, in terms of residency programs, blessed to get accepted there. And when I found out that I was being accepted there, I moved back from medical school in my fourth year, like my last six months, and was able to get into the Orange County Sheriff's Academy where I did my uh, reserve sheriff training, um, had a medical director or a residency director at Loma Linda who was a, an army vet. And he kind of liked the fact that I was in law enforcement. And so he worked with me during the first month of residency so I can finish up my sheriff training along with residency. Anyway. Ended up getting sworn in, in in 2003 with the Sheriff's Department, been flying with them ever since. It's a volunteer position, hundreds of uh, missions, you know, probably 800 plus missions, uh, rescue, hoist, offsite landings, all that stuff. And my love for pre-hospital medicine has basically just grown since then. I uh, had another mentor in residency that had done a lot of pre-hospital care, um, had an ambulance company. I got into NASCAR. Um, you know, we have a huge track out here in Fontana where NASCAR will come in and do their, you know, 500 mile races, indie racing, motocross, lots of large venue uh, concerts in the county, um, just a ton of stuff. So I just, I always loved it. Uh, got involved with DMAT, which is a, a FEMA disaster medical assistance team, was doing that for a while. Um, work with the 911 system in San Bernardino County as their med director for 10 plus years recently, you know, stepped down from that just because of how busy I've gotten work in sports medicine with Ontario Rain, which is the LA Kings uh, farm team. Um, work with, I mean, the professional athletes, just awesome to work with that. Just kind of continue to build my pre-hospital, you know, field medicine. And then in terms of the EP world, it was just dumb luck, right? I got a call from a buddy of mine. Hey, listen, I know your background. I've got buddies of mine up north that are working with this private family office, and they're looking for a medical director. Um, are you interested? Bunch of conversations back and forth. A few months later, they, they offered me a position, and I've been doing it for the last three-plus years. Pretty big private family office. Um, just on the security side, probably 95 plus security personnel who some of them were already previously trained in uh, medicine, uh, special forces, paramedicine. And our goal is to get everybody trained up as an EMT. Uh, COVID put a little delay on that training, but, you know, we'll get back into the training and try to get every single security personnel uh, trained as an EMT basic. Um, so we all have a baseline uh you know, medical standard for, for the group. So, I mean, the reality is, is, you know, emergency medicine has been good to me. Um, the pre-hospital medicine is, is my love and, you know, basically just dumb luck falling into the security world. Oh man, that's awesome. And and I appreciate you sharing kind of a, a deeper background there for our listeners. Um, and before we dig into kind of your role as a medical director and, and kind of where do we start for most security professionals, you know, we have a certain background, a lot of emphasis on hard skills, and I would even argue that the the trauma care component falls into the hard skills. Um, however, for most guys starting out, if you're looking at a four-day shooting course, you're looking at an eight-hour uh, trauma care course, a lot of people are going to gravitate to that shooting course over the trauma care. Um, but again, you know, when you start talking about certifications, the EMT basic, the paramedic, the TECC, and the TCCCs, um, and we can go on with different certifications. Um, it can be really daunting. And I think for a lot of us in the security practitioner world who aren't medical professionals, don't have a medical background per se, starting out or that starting point of where do I start can be really daunting. Do I jump into a TECC? Do I go to a TCC school? Do I go get an EMT certification or do I do the first responder route and the BLS, CPR? Could you break down kind of some of those differences in the certifications? First of all, maybe what some of those are and the relevancy to certain applications. Um, and then really from your perspective, what you think is maybe a, a good, you know, round out for protector to have, you know, is it a certification based? Is it knowledge based? Is it picking and choosing from some of these? 
where do you kind of go with that? And even with your teams, what have you kind of built as a good benchmark? Yeah, it, it can be very daunting. Um, I'll, I'll try to make it uh, simplified. I you know medicine, uh, you can make it as hard as it can be, or you can try to simplify it. So, I mean, I think one thing is what's being pushed now is trauma care. Um, very important. But I think the other thing is just going to be general medical um, emergency care. Uh, it's not always going to be trauma. Someone on your team may have something happen medically and you need to be able to recognize and treat, stabilize and get to higher level of care. So in terms of like, you know, these certifications, these these other uh, trainings you can get, everybody should have. And it would, would just be basic like first responder. It's not a certification, but there's a group of skills that you should have. Um, CPR, basic life support, how to use an AED you know, a stop the bleed course or a course where you do basic trauma care, right? How to put on a tourniquet, how to put on a chest seal, how to stop an extremity bleed, how to stop a, a torso bleed, how to pack a wound. You know, a lot of these things you can learn in a TECC, which we can discuss uh, later, or a TCCC course. Um, so that's kind of the basic thing. The next step up would be like an emergency uh, medical responders course. You know, the Red Cross uh, has a course that will take 50 plus hours to do, um, you know, and these people are trained in scene safety, primary assessment, history taking, airway management, uh, giving supplemental oxygen, how to conduct CPR, cardiac emergencies, medical emergencies, you know, uh, in 50 hours, you, you can get a, a nice broad overview. You probably won't get into the details of each medical emergencies, but at least you have a, a large overview how to treat behavioral emergencies, shock, bleeding, soft tissue injuries, you know, get an introduction to childbirth, peds, you know, an introduction into the ICS and mass casualty care system. Um, so that, you know, it's a nice baseline to have. If you've got more time and you can take that course, I would highly recommend it. Then you get to the next level, which is, you know, the EMT basic or commonly known as, you know, being an EMT. You know, at that point, you know, you're now going to be licensed either nationally in our EMT or by the state that you're working. And if you're actually going to provide that level of care, then you need to be certified by a medical director. You have to have a medical oversight. You can't just be, oh, I'm nationally recognized as an EMT and just go out into the world and start practicing as an EMT, especially if you're going to be uh, hired you know, as a security provider with EMT skills. So the, your organization has to have a medical director. You know, in the EMT basic, it's a 150 plus hour course. You're dealing now with airway suctioning using uh, CPAP and BiPAP ventilation, which is positive airway ventilation, using humidified oxygen, placing a NPA OPAs, which are nasal and oral pharyngeal airways to help open up the airway uh, if a patient's unconscious and you don't have the ability to, to get a uh, endotracheal tube in. Using pulse oxes, giving aspirin, oral glucose, assisting patients give prescribed medicine. Once again, it, it's one of these skills and information that's really nice to have. You don't have to do a lot, but if you know a lot and you're able to do some of these small things, it can be very helpful. And then the big thing is paramedic school, right? Very hard to do if you're a security professional. My thoughts are is every detail should have a paramedic on that detail. Not everybody has to be a paramedic, but it's always nice to have one on each detail or, or one available, especially if you're going to be in rural areas where you may not have any medical backup for 30 minutes, an hour. Um, it's nice to be able to do that yourself. Also, once again, it's a nationally recognized, certified, uh, should be licensed in the state that you're conducting your trade and then also certified by a medical director. And we won't go into all of it, but basically they can do a whole lot. They can do endotracheal intubations. They can do advanced uh, airways, doing crikes, uh, thoracostomies, doing EKGs, interpreting EKGs, placing NGOG tubes, which are tubes that go uh, into the stomach, either via nasal or oral route. Um, they can put IVs in, give IV fluids, give medications, whole host of things that they can do. I won't even go on the list. Everybody can look it up if you're interested. But I mean, that's that that I think is. The standard should be having at least one medic on the detail if you're going to be in austere or rural uh, environments. Probably not necessary for every in the city detail. But once again, my opinion, my two cents, and I'm sure others would not want to hear me say that, but that's kind of what I'm saying. Um, 
then outside of kind of the EMT, uh, paramedic, anybody can take this, are the TCCC and the TECC courses. Both great courses, very similar, but some differences. So the TCCC, which is the Tactical Combat Casualty Care uh, course, it's, I believe, a two-day, 16-hour course. It's basically military medical guidelines, right? It's hard to be dis- deployed in the civilian sector because it's was built for you know the military so they're further away from medical centers care under fire they're doing a lot of prolonged field care um they have a different um treatment plan so they use hexton which is not something that we use and i think they're actually trying to gear away from using it they give o negative blood in the field they give pre-hospital antibiotics for trauma in the field just because of their lack of proximity to, you know, higher level of care. They do needle decompression by non-medical personnel. You don't have to be a paramedic to do needle decompression. Now, more likely than not, there's going to be, you know, a medic that's going to be doing it. But if you are faced with having to do it, you're trained to do it. And then you've got TECC, which is basically the civilian medical guidelines. And the TECC course even per their you know, board, is, was taken from TCCC, but with some changes to make it you know, better for the civilian community, right? Um, so some of the difference uh, is patient population. You know, in TECC, they're training towards peds to elderly. In the military, I mean, your, your, your demographics are healthy, 18 to 45-year-old men and women. You're not getting the five-year-old. You're not getting the 75-year-old. Uh, and that's not what it's geared towards. Uh, you know, so like I said, pediatrics is, uh, is, is built into TECC. Also, you know, the operations are, are different, you know, in the military, you're treating patients longer, you're, you're trying to gain territory, um, you're providing more care on the scene versus in TECC, your emphasis is basically stabilized and getting them to, you know, higher level of care without spending tons of time in the field. You know, you've got the trauma golden hour and you want to get patients gone and higher level of care. So hopefully that was a good overview of kind of the realm of, you know, medical training you can get in the security industry. Um, And I think everybody should have at least that basic, just first responder or emergency medical responder care. No, I think that's great. And if anything, I mean, that overview you provided just shows the depth, right? The depth of the the medical care community and the different trainings, the different applications, like you said, you've got the combat casualty care, which has a demographic that is between, you know, 18 to, to 45, and it's built for those kind of athletic men. And then you've got the uh, TECC, which is something that kind of provides more to a civilian demographic and something that you're probably going to run into a little bit more in an EP environment where you, you know, you may be the uh, the protector that is doubling as the nanny, right? When you're on kid duty. And that's going to give you a totally different perspective when you're dealing with, you know, two to 17 year olds than uh, when you're dealing with that 18 to 45 demographic. And same thing, your protectee might be, uh, you know, in his 60s, 70s or 80s. And that brings a whole host of different issues for you to think about. And so with that, you know, once you get these certifications, right, emergency medical is a perishable skill. You know, we talk about shooting being a perishable skill, some of these other hard skills, the driving, etc. What is it about the emergency medical component that makes it a perishable skills? And what are different ways to maintain these skills, either as a team or even as a lone practitioner? Yeah, I mean, so medical skills are very perishable. A lot of us in the medical field don't find them perishable because we're doing them all the time, right? I mean, there's some skills that, I mean, I haven't done a needle cricothyroidomy in five years. So it's not something that we do all the time. It's something you still kind of want to review because if you're in the heat of the moment and you have to do it, you better know how to do it. There's no time to, to look it up. Um, so you, you got to stay on top of it. So what's hard about you know the security industry is... These are skills that you're probably rarely, if ever, going to use. Um, so it's very easy to take, you know, a course, be certified in TECC, and have not use it for two years and forget how to do what you're supposed to be doing. Um, so it's that that thing. If you don't use it, you're going to lose it. So it's not like riding a bike. You know, you ride a bike, you don't get on it for five years. You probably jump right on. Um, you know, and it's medicine is just not intuitive, right? So there's rules to remember in terms of, 
you know, what do you do if this happens? What are the normal numbers? What's a normal heart rate? What's the normal blood sugar? What's a normal blood pressure? It's all stuff that is just not intuitive. If you don't use it, you're going to forget it. If you haven't seen it in two years, you're going to forget, oh man, what was a normal blood sugar? And I think in terms of reducing the perishability, it would be great if the companies you work for had monthly trainings, biweekly trainings. It's hard, right? Because their goal is operations. It's hard to pull people away from their work um, to do training. So a lot of it has to be self-motivated. You know, um, are you going to take courses on the side? Are you going to listen to podcasts? Are you going to have a weekly, hey, I, I forgot about this procedure. Let me go on YouTube, go on the internet and find a, a nice overview video on this um, and just kind of working on it yourself, I think, is, is your best bet. Um, if you work for an organization that's going to have trainings built in, like our organization that I work for, um, basically has a, a rotating training plan. And that's what we do. We'll, we'll pull guys off operations and do that training for them. So that's always nice. To build off that you know, organizational component, what are some things for organizations more specifically that you've seen that have had benefit in training programs or developing you know, internal um, standards for either their security officers, their protectors, or there's corporate security individuals, what are some things that they can do starting today to change that trajectory and have a positive outcome for the organization? So I think the biggest thing is to work for someone who's got 100% buy-in on having a medical component to the security component. I think that's very important. Everybody wants to, and I've talked to many of the teams that are interested in it, you know, and they're very interested in it. And then you kind of realize it's hard, right? It's not an easy subject to learn. Uh, the training is, you know, you've seen 50 hours to a thousand plus hours, you know, if you want to get to that paramedic level, you know, and they get gun shy when they kind of realize how detailed they have to be. I mean, you've also, once you run a medical program, you know, there's increased costs. I mean, you want medical direction, you want uh, a training component. So there's, there's, there's a lot of aspects to it certification, making sure that people certs when they expire, that they get recertified. Also just, you know, CEs. I mean, if you're an EMT and you're a medic, you've got CEs that you have to conduct for your, you know, your bi-yearly renewal, or I think it's every four years, depending on uh, if you're an EMT or, or medic. Um, in terms of other forms to be successful, I think you need an experienced medical program manager. You know, someone who's just going to oversee everything. I mean, you'll have a medical director who can help you, but he's not going to do the day-to-day -day hate that so-and-so gets certified, uh, renewed. Um, someone who's looking over the medical equipment. Is this medical equipment expired? Is this working for us? Do we need this? Medications also. I mean, do we need this? Are we using it? Is it expired? Um, does everybody who needs it have it? You know, it's you just have to have that buy in and have a plan and just work on that plan and know it's going to be hard. And but once you get it set up, it's smooth sailing. So interestingly enough, you know, as we're talking right around this time, I'm taking an online course that's actually for route mapping and it's provided through Sec4 International, a company located, you know, basically down the road, about an hour and a half south of us in San Diego. And uh, as part of this course, you know, we have to successfully design a number of route maps and those have alternate routes for contingency options. And that include, you know, tactical, but also medical self-evacuations. Um, so in light of this responsibility that, you know, protection teams have for the well-being of their clients, could you explain some of the differences in hospitals? Because, you know, as you and I know, not all hospitals are the same. And when those seconds matter, it's important to know that distinction so you know where to go and where you need to go and what options you have if you even have options in the area you're in, right? So I think it'd be an interesting breakdown right now for some of the protectors and any individuals that's listening right now who maybe aren't familiar or think that all hospitals are the same, right? You got your level one trauma centers like you practiced at and did your residency at, and then you have other hospitals. So could you build out that infrastructure for the listeners today? Yes. With that question, you know, that's where the medical advance is very important. I talk about medical advance uh, with our group. So when our groups travel, we travel locally in the California and the United States, but a lot of international travel. So we always do a medical advance. So depending on where we're going and how long we're going to be out there, we find nearest hospitals. 
and we can discuss the difference of the hospital. So you've got level one trauma centers who in the United States um, basically can handle anything. They've got neurosurgery, they've got cardiothoracic surgery, they, obviously they've got an emergency room and any kind of trauma that's out there, you can deal with it. Then you've got hospitals that may not be level one trauma centers, but maybe burn centers. So, you know, in, in my county that I work at, uh, it just so happens to be a level one trauma and burn center. And we have a level one trauma center and we have level two trauma centers. Uh, and there's differences between the two and they're not all standard difference. So you have to look into it. You know, some of these level two trauma centers may not have neurosurgery component. So if you've got a trauma with a head injury, you probably don't want to go to the level two trauma center um, if they're equidistant or maybe the level one trauma center is five more minutes this way or 10 more minutes this way, it may just be better for you to go to, you know, the level one trauma center, delay uh, care a little bit. I hate to even say the word delay care because you're getting the patient to the right care, the best optimal care, even if it does take a little more time versus getting them to the level two trauma center, spending 45 minutes there to find out they have a brain bleed and now transferring them over to a level one trauma center. You just wasted 45 minutes uh, to an hour. Um, so those are all just kind of concepts that it's that advanced higher level. You have to know kind of what you're dealing with and what's the most likely outcome for the patient, depending on the mechanism of injury and get them to the right place. So with the, the trauma centers, the big thing is level one, level two, level three trauma centers. Your level three trauma centers are just your basic, you know, emergency rooms. I currently work, I believe, at a level three trauma center. We don't have a cardiothoracic surgeon. We don't have neurosurgery. So if you get shot and you live and you're one of these, you know, quote unquote, homeboy drop offs where your buddy dro dropped you off at the emergency room, you know, ambulance bay uh, with a gunshot to your chest, if we can kind of keep you alive to transfer you over to the trauma center, the level one trauma center where the cardiothoracic surgeon can open you up and stop whatever internal bleeding you have. Great. Um, then there's hospitals that aren't trauma centers, but are stroke receiving facilities or MI receiving facilities that have the ability to treat you for a stroke um, or a hospital that's able to treat you uh, for a heart attack and an acute myocardial infarction, which is basically the, for the layman, a heart attack where we can do thrombolytics or send you to the cath lab where they can go up into your heart, image your heart, figure out which vessels are occluded and, and throw stents in there. So there's a whole host, just going to a hospital is not the only thing anymore. It's just like in medicine, there's specialties, subspecialties, even sub subspecialties in medicine. There's different levels of hospitals and what they can do. And you want to get that patient to the right hospital at the right time for the right problem uh, to kind of decrease any uh, delays there. So hopefully that was a kind of a good overview of the healthcare system. Yeah, that was a great overview. And I, and I want to dig into a little bit more on this, this hospital advance, right? Um, I've taken numerous advanced courses, we've done advances, um, and it's an important component that if left out, can have some dire consequences, right? But Michael, before I have you jump into that, we're going to take a brief pause and listen to a message about our sponsor today, Tactical Fitness Austin out of Austin, Texas, uh, founded by a buddy of mine, Ron Grobman, fantastic firearms instructor and uh, and one of the youngest Krav Maga instructors at age 16 certified in the U.S. He later went on to serve with the IDF in a special forces capacity and uh, is back in Austin now, uh, really has a passion for teaching civilians, law enforcement, military personnel, as well as security professionals. So we'll be back in a moment, everybody, with more from Michael on trauma care and executive protection after listening to this message about our sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Tactical Fitness Austin, a world-leading provider of authentic self-defense training. Ron Grobin and his instructor cadre combine unparalleled service with life-saving instruction to equip their students with the expertise necessary for the real world. Their training aims to improve your tactical skills to give you the knowledge you need and provide the physical fitness necessary to become a more confident and powerful version of yourself. Tactical Fitness has a number of training courses such as concealed carry, Krav Maga defense, pistol and rifle shooting development, tactical trauma care, and third-party executive protection. Visit the Tactical Fitness Austin website provided in the show description for more information on their courses and one-of-a-kind combat club membership. All right, everybody, we are back. And again, this is episode number six of the Global Security Protection Group podcast. And we're here with, uh, with Michael Gerges. And so, Michael, 
we were just talking about the differences in hospitals to uh, to the conversation about that advance. We touched on it just a little bit, but I want to dig in to the importance of that advance from your perspective as a medical director. What are some of the things that, that an advanced team should do, whether it's contacting or meeting in person some of these hospitals and uh, representatives from these hospitals, and how you kind of build that successful component to uh, give your team the best capability when they're on the ground and if they are to run into any medical issues or trauma care issues. Uh, during their assignment? Yeah. So for me, when I do the medical advance, it's probably way more robust than needs be, but it's because of kind of my training, the field medicine I've done in the past, kind of knowing, hey, listen, you got to kind of know where you're going for what issue, response time, are you going to this hospital in traffic, outside of traffic? So, you know, I've got a pretty uh, robust medical advance and what the guys I work with are pretty high level operators, paramedics, PJs, um, really good at what they do and they, and they help out with those medical advances. So I think the first thing you need to do is just kind of know your client, right? The family, the friends, the people that are going to be with them traveling, uh, kind of know their medical background and then train up for it. I mean, if you've got a bunch of asthmatics and diabetics and you're not trained up on treating asthma exacerbations, hypoglycemic episodes, or maybe even hyperglycemic episodes, then you're not doing yourself or your client a disservice by having to wing it at the end when it happens. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is kind of where you're going and where the nearest higher level of care, hospitals, urgent cares are gonna be. Um, you know, are there trauma centers? Are there stroke centers? Uh, where are the cardiac cath centers? If you've got a bunch of kids on a yacht somewhere, um, where are the pediatric trauma you know, centers if something were to happen? You know, the worst thing is taking a three-year-old to an adult trauma center that hasn't done peds or, you know, the ped center is, is down the street um, and now they're scrambling to transfer um, and any kind of transfer from hospital to hospital takes a lot of time compared to you just going to the right place at the, you know, at the beginning of uh, the medical emergency or traumatic emergency. Um, then the other option is, is, you know, what's the transport like? Where are you going to be? Are you going to be on a boat? Um, how do you get off the boat to land? Um, does that country or that area have, you know, 24-7 EMS? Um, is the EMS service, you know, in a rural part of the United States somewhere, a volunteer EMS service where you may be waiting an hour for them to come to you? Uh, what's the traffic like? You know, are there road closures? You know, what time of day? You always have to consider that. I mean, if you're in New York City at, you know, rush hour 8 a.m. and something happens, you know, the, the hospital down the street five minutes away is not five minutes away at rush hour. Along with that advance is, you know, how long is your trip? How far are you away? What kind of advanced medical and trauma equipment are you carrying? If you're on a yacht and you're 12 miles off the coast in international waters of a you know, a Mediterranean city, it's going to take a while for you to get to the coast, you know? So if you've got a near drowned, a drowned, a cardiac arrest, and you don't have an AED or a defibrillator or cardiac monitor or ACLS drugs, um, I mean, there's going to be a huge delay. I mean, CPR is great, but doing CPR for, you know, 30 minutes until you get to the coast and then, you know, call for EMS to, to meet you at one of the docks, you know, if you didn't have that advanced medications and advanced equipment, you're still providing standard of care, but it would be nice if you had a little higher level uh, care to provide since you were put in a situation that you knew you were going to be far away from a hospital. And then there's other things. As you get advanced medical providers uh, on the advance, you know, are you able to just take care of just simple stuff? You know, hey, I sprained my ankle. Maybe it's broken. Can you splint it? Uh, does this have to be an evacuation to the coast or is it something you can splint, treat for pain and get them there, you know, casually over the next few days or just, you know, cancel the trip, head back to the States if that's where you're, you're based out of. Um, another thing is where you're going. Is there endemic disease there? You know, are you going to Africa where there's malaria, dengue fever? Are you going to a place that may have, you know, rampant COVID at this time? Uh, you know, do you have tests with you? Are you going to have any kind of uh, screening for people that may be coming to visit you? Um, do you have enough COVID tests? Do you have the medications if you do get one of these endemic diseases uh, to treat for the, the fevers, the diarrhea, the upper respiratory uh, symptoms that you may get, Motrin, Tylenol, things like that? That's I mean, we add a telemedicine component to it. We're a lot more advanced than a lot of the other teams in terms of we've got 
telemedicine capabilities, I'm available. We've got deals with uh, companies that can provide uh, telemedicine for us. We've got advanced monitors. We use a, a monitor by Philips that basically has got integrated into it telemedicine capabilities that will uh, send via satellite vitals and things like that that we use for our clients. Um, you know, and then the last thing is an evacuation plan. If something happens and you need higher level of care or you're not happy with maybe the level of care in so-and-so country, do you have the ability to get back home to your hospital, to your doctors? Um, and that's basically vetting uh, some of these uh, aerotransport companies, making sure you have an agreement with them, making sure that they're vetted, that they're a legit company so that when you do call, they're actually available and they weren't selling you, you know, uh, hopes and dreams. Uh, and now that you need them, they're not available because they are somewhere else or they don't have a pilot that day or, or whatever problems that can occur. So you just got to vet that once you found them, that they're actually legitimate. So that's kind of the advance I do. That's the advance that our team does. Um, it's a lot, but you know, we, we've got an organization that, that takes it very seriously. So you know, this is what we do. And, and I think it's just makes the trip a lot less stressful where you kind of already know all your ins and outs, all your options. And now you're just being able to enjoy the trip, you know, with your client and their friends and family. All right. So, Michael, I want to pivot to um, the protector again and and some of the equipment based uh, components for them. And, and I know for myself, every day when I go out, I've got a minimum, you know, that IFAC, uh, the tourniquet, the chest seal, pressure bandage, uh, the hemostatic agents. Um, but beyond that, for a protective team, you know, I go through the AED training periodically, um, the CPR stuff as well. How important is it for a team to utilize that AED? I know it's it's a monetary investment, um, but that investment can be, you know, critical and almost priceless in the event that you need to use it. Yeah. In terms of AED, I think any moving detail should have it. If you're moving in a car, I think it should be in your vehicle. It's an investment. The prices of AEDs now compared to what they were five, 10 years ago, I mean, you can get a quality AED for $2,000. It, it's pennies compared to what, I mean, the technology, the, the compact size, it's absolutely cheap. And knowing what an AED can do for someone who has a acute cardiac um, failure, goes into cardiac arrest, I mean, it's priceless. I mean, if you've got an arrhythmia, uh, CPR is not going to change that arrhythmia. Only electricity changes that arrhythmia. And it's what an AED does. I, I think it's priceless. You, you should have one if you're on the move um, in the vehicle with your client, especially if you're on an airplane or on a yacht, a boat um, away from you know EMS. But even if you're in the city and you've got EMS that can respond within five minutes, that five minutes of VFib or VTAC it's unnecessary to be in it that long if AED is available. Absolutely. And uh, so, you know, building off the the equipment component, right? So you've got the AED, um, the tourniquets, right? I'm very selective on my tourniquet providers, where I get them, how I get them. Didn't even know about the counterfeit tourniquet world uh, for a number of years until I was at a training and, and they were discussing that, what's coming out of China, some other areas. Um and it's, you know, again, a lot of people are money conscious. And when you see, a, you know, $8, $10 tourniquet on Amazon or somewhere um, and you think, oh, great, you know what? I'm getting great bang for the buck. But they don't realize that they've got, you know, a piece of hardware that really is going to do more damage than good. Could you explain kind of what's out there? Maybe some things to stay away from um, and, and just kind of educate the listeners on some of the counterfeit items that they may encounter so they can steer clear of some of those those items. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of counterfeit, I mean, it's counterfeit medications now, you know, it, it, there's anything medical, there's going to be counterfeit. And is it hard to tell the difference between counterfeit and not counterfeit? Absolutely. I mean, that's the whole point of, you know, counterfeit. So I think your biggest indicator that something is counterfeit is the price point. If you know a quality tourniquet supposed to cost you 35 to $45 and you're getting it off eBay for eight bucks or Amazon for eight bucks, look, you're buying something counterfeit. Um, and when it comes to what the tourniquet's used for, which is stopping hemorrhage, will the counterfeit probably work? Yeah. Does it have the quality control that, you know, a certified tourniquet would have? Probably not. So why are you taking the chance of a $25 cost savings, you know, and the tourniquet's probably going to be used for yourself. You know, a lot of people have the IFAC. It's, 
individual first aid kit for yourself. So if you want to short yourself, you know, 25 bucks for something that may or may not work, um, probably not the wisest of, of decisions. So I would, you know, go to a reputable uh, dealer, um, North American Rescue. Uh, there's tons of companies that are out there that are reputable. Um, and buy your, your your equipment from there. This is not something you want to skimp on. Um, it's not nothing we skimp on. We spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on medical equipment, you know, all the time. Um, you just need to do it. The reality is, is medical equipment is a lot more expensive than other equipment. The same product that you could, you know, if there was a tourniquet for uh, non-medical things, it would be probably half the price. But once you get into the medical field, things are just more expensive. And that's just, that's the name of the game. And it is what it is. There's liability to it. There's extra testing that goes with it because we're using it in the medical field. That's just one of the costs. And again, it's one of those things you kind of get what you pay for, right? And uh, you this is a context where you may pay for it with your life if you're going to be shortchanging on some of the equipment that you use um, in a critical manner. Um, before we wrap up today, you know, a lot of guys in the executive protection world, protective services, they, they come from either military or law enforcement. It's not everybody, but it's a lot of them. And uh, those individuals are somewhat kind of pack animals, right? We, we really like to be in our groups, our organizations. And so for protectors that want to find organizations and find groups um, on the medical side to maybe build out this component that, that either they're lacking or they want to build upon even further, what are some things, groups, organizations, I know we mentioned that, that you're on a working group uh, for the Board of Executive Protection Professionals. Um, what else is out there and what else is good in terms of organization for individuals to join and to help hone and maintain these skills? Maybe something with you know, continuing education, whether it's video-based or in-person, that they can continue to maintain or build their emergency medical background? You know, in terms of organizations, I, I am yet to know of an organization that is a security-based medical kind of care organization. There's tons of security organizations. There's tons of, you know, EP organizations, slash security organizations, and there's tons of organizations that are for the medical. But Something that kind of melds the two together, I'm yet to know, and this is kind of where I'll ask your podcast listeners and your followers, you know, hit me up on LinkedIn. If you do know of an organization, I'd love to get involved. I'd love to read up more about it. Um, I don't know if one exists. I have, I've searched for, you know, years for it and I don't see it. Um, in terms of just security organizations, you know, I know ACES comes up uh, a lot for those that are security professionals. I'm sure they have medical components. Um, to it. I, I'm not a, a member of it, um, just kind of being on the, the medical side. Also, for those uh, on the medical side, you know, there's obviously the National Association of EMTs. Uh, there's paramedic associations. If you're a medic, um, you're probably aware of. For me, I'm, I'm a part of the NAEMSP group, which is National Association of EMS Physicians. I'm part of that group. But even that group itself, a lot of that is uh, physicians who have a, a subspecialty in EMS work, so but they're working for ambulance companies, aeromedical companies. They're not really working for uh, executive protection, security teams, uh, private family offices, things like that. I think security EP medical is kind of an up and coming. I see it gaining a lot of steam. I've taken calls from Fortune 100 companies that have EP groups that don't really have a great medical background and, and they see uh, the need for it. The way medicine is going now, kind of post-COVID, there's tons of burnout. There's lots of providers who work in fire, EMS, hospitals, nurses who probably should have retired, wanted to retire, but they continue to work. And then when COVID hit, they said, I'm out you know, time to retire, no need for me to work to 65 to get COVID and something happened to me. I'm going to go enjoy retirement. I'm done. And I think we're seeing that now. It's just burnout, you know, after two years of COVID and shutdowns and this and that and hospitals being overrun with patients, um, people getting sick, uh, their people are just done. And that being said, you're going to get delays in EMS, uh, seen times. They're not going to be there in five minutes like they were five years ago. Um, you're going to have delays in the emergency department when you go. I mean, I've worked the last two months. And even though there's been a small surge in Southern California with COVID, it's just our staffing is terrible. Nurses calling off, docs calling off, docs getting sick, people not picking up extra shifts, leaving shifts open. Nobody wants to work. 
even in this recession we're in, nobody wants to pick up extra shifts for extra, you know, extra cash. People are just tired. I think they're just kind of burnt out. So, you know, I, I think people are, are, and corporations and EP companies and security companies are starting to see that need for, you know, advancing their medical program intermingled with their security operations. So, you know, it's interesting to bring in the the burnout rate, right? And and I think you're going to see somewhat a diminished level of care, like you were talking about in these hospitals, right? And and again, that's all the more need. And I think wants and needs. And I think uh, some of these organizations and certainly some of these, you know, individual clients that that you serve are realizing that you know the the trauma component it isn't so much a want in this world. It's it's an absolute need. And I think that's a trajectory that we're going on. It's a positive trajectory. Um, and it's all the more important for somebody like yourself to be involved in that or, or a medical director for these teams. Um, but on that note, for anybody that is in you know, the medical field that's listening, um, RN, EMT, paramedic, um, that's either running that rig or at that hospital dealing with this and, and maybe hitting a burnout rate and thinking, what else can I do? And they're at that nexus where kind of like you, they're, they're maybe listening to this and falling into one of those, I, I don't know how I got here, but I'm here moments and thinking about executive protection. What is the value of somebody joining a team, coming into a team, wanting to make a transition into executive protection that already has some of these certifications that we've been talking about, whether it's EMT basic or the paramedic um, and, and even some of these other certifications? How valuable is that to, to a medical director like you or a team to have somebody coming on that wants to join that already has this institutional knowledge? <laughs> so that's a tricky question. My personal opinion is it's easier to treat someone with the medical background to do the security work than it is to treat or to, to, to get a security professional the training to, let's say, get to a paramedic level or obviously like a nurse level. Um, that being said, not all EMS professionals have that mindset, security professionals, but you can very easily go into a, a firehouse, an emergency room. I mean, I can name three or four nurses that I work with that may have military background that are great nurses that would be perfect for executive protection. And then there's some that have no business doing executive protection because that's they just don't have that natural, innate mindset to be aware of the surroundings and things like that that makes you a good, you know, EP security professional. Uh, for me, you know, I've got that law enforcement, I've got that protector mindset that, you know, watch your back, get that, go with your gut feeling. Does this situation feel right? Does it look right? Does it sound right? I'm kind of in tune with all those things. And then the law enforcement background and then just the medicine is gravy on top, right? So that's that's where this has been a natural kind of push to, you know, what I'm interested in doing now. Um, but yeah, I mean, the reality is I think with burnout, I think there's going to be a movement of EMS providers, either hospital-based, public sector, private sector, um, state, federal sector, where there's going to be a movement, you know, after 20 years of doing a career, people want to change. And, you know, the EP movement, security movement is kind of a natural place for these people to go, which is also going to just put a strain on the medical community. So, you know, kind of we're in a, we're in a place where I have a feeling I, I know where it's going to go. Um, and everybody has to do, you know, what's best for them, what's best for their families. Um, so we'll kind of see how it all plays out. It's always interesting to see kind of where the trajectory of society is going and, and what implications that's going to have. And, and certainly there are going to be implications for executive protection teams and corporate security teams as well, um, how they're going to handle this. And, and again, I think, like you said, it's about building that institutional knowledge within your teams and so that they can operate uh, better until they get somewhere with the higher level of care. And if society is going in the trajectory that you and I have talked about in the past, um, those areas where you find higher levels of care are going to be harder to find and farther away, few and far between. So again, building that institutional knowledge within your own team to have the confidence to get there and get your client there safely, I think is going to be everything moving forward. So I, I think your world and the nexus of executive protection really smashed into each other. Um, and, and more so, it's, it's been more publicized of that nexus. And I think that's, that's great. 
So as, as we close up shop here today, one, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, you've been extremely generous with us, but also I want to make sure that people can find you um, on LinkedIn or other areas that, uh, that you have contact. So could you just give a, uh, your LinkedIn information, where to find you, how to get in contact with you? Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn. That's the only real social media I do. Um, it's Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Gurgis, G-U-I-R-G-Y-S-M-D. Um, maybe you can throw a link on, on the podcast. Connect with me. I'm open. I'm busy, but I will answer any emails, friend requests, questions you have, interest in, you know, learning more about, you know, medical direction, medical training for your organization, small or large. I don't care if you're a one man show and you want to, you know, learn more or, you know, the fortune, you know, 50 company that, you know, you're the security director. I'm open. I'm an open book. I'll talk to anybody. I think for me, it's just important that if we're out there protecting clients, protecting families, the reality is, is we do a dangerous job. There's obviously threats, which is why you're actually being hired. So if something goes south, something happens and there's an injury or a medical emergency and you're not trained up to provide care, to provide medical care, trauma care, I think that's the real uh, disaster um, that would happen in that scenario. So my goal is just to, to educate. Look, it's hard, but it's not undoable. We can do it. Just, you know, it's a, it's a little grind, but once you get it there, you're, you're good. It's like all training. You know, it's another hard skill that you have to just consider a hard skill, just like hand-to-hand combat, shooting, you know. Once we all see it kind of that way, then it makes it easy for everybody to just implement it in their ops plan that medical is just part of it. And we talk about it just like we do about evacuations and things like that with a client. Uh, like I said, the integration is, is an important component and making it as mainstream as the shooting schools and the driving schools and, and some of the other cool things that we get to do um, in training far more than we do in, uh, in the real world. So I, I think the relevancy is well there. Um, again, when everybody else has deer in the headlight looks, you don't want to be included in that population. You want to be the one with solutions and answers to guide your team in the right direction. So again, Michael, thank you for your time. And uh, to all of those listening today, thank you for listening to uh, the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. Until next time, stay safe.